Welcome to GW Integrative Medicine, the podcast about disease prevention and health promotion from the Office of Integrative Medicine and Health at the George Washington University School of Medicine and Health Sciences. I'm Dr. Lee Frame, Director of the Integrative Medicine Programs here at GW. And I'm Janet Rodriguez, the Office's Administrative Director. Today, we're talking about precision medicine with Anil Bajnath, MD, MBA, CEO and founder of the Institute for Human Optimization and an adjunct assistant professor in the GW School of Medicine and Health Sciences. The NIH describes precision medicine as an emerging approach for disease treatment and prevention that takes into account individual variability in genes, environment, and lifestyles for each person. Dr. Bajnath is conventionally trained in family medicine and integrative medicine. Throughout the span of a decade, he has cultivated extensive firsthand experience in precision, integrative, functional, and genomic medicine. And he's paying it forward by teaching precision medicine to grad students in GW's integrative medicine programs. Welcome to GW Integrative Medicine, Anil. Hi, guys. Thank you so much for having me. We are glad to have you. We're happy that you could make it. Yeah, no, awesome. This is wonderful. Thank you so much for entertaining uh, this discussion on a topic that I'm incredibly passionate about. Thank you. So that's a great place to start. What put you on the path to precision medicine? Um, Yeah, thank you for for asking. I I think that, um, you know, healthcare as a whole is a very fascinating landscape of how we got to where we're at today. And if you were to look at the health sciences, uh, and its evolution over the past 10 to 15 years, we've made some pretty fascinating advancements in our molecular diagnostic technologies. And ever since the completion of the human genome, we're, we're able to decode and identify specific hotspots within the gene that makes up our unique individual blueprint it's been a fascinating area of discovery and personalization within medicine. Um, but the story for me kind of begins um, 20 years ago uh, while I was in high school and working at a Whole Foods market um, in the nutraceutical or whole body department where I got a crash course on nutraceuticals, homeopathy, botanical medicine, and various lifestyle medicine practices. And I was fortunate enough to have met many influencers during that time that have influenced me on the trajectory that I've taken with how I approach healthcare. Um, So I I, got to say that it was very interesting to have that impression and influence uh, at a young age. It's definitely molded my trajectory in healthcare. And utilizing these different uh, nutraceuticals and integrative therapies has been a hallmark in my approach to healthcare, even prior to starting medical school. But most notably, um, it kind of also uh, began with uh, my first intro to some of the health sciences utilizing uh, phase contrast and dark field microscopy in a technique examining uh, undenatured peripheral blood, also known as uh, uh, qualitative cell dynamics, where you literally take a drop of blood, put it on the microscope slide, and you're able to see the various levels of morphological changes. And for me, 
it was incredibly fascinating to see the unique blueprint that everybody has within their blood or terrain. And this led me down a field of health sciences, uh, furthering my understanding of medical laboratory science and receiving formal training in um, hematopathology um, as a medical technician and combining both the integrative nutritional microscopy with the conventional uh, standards of, of hematology. And uh, coupling that during my undergraduate studies, I double majored at uh, University of Central Florida in molecular microbiology and medical laboratory sciences. And during my time there, I was privileged to have been uh, exposed to uh, some bright minds and amazing researchers that uh, during that time, uh, there, it was a very interesting period of growth and development in the field of molecular biology and our understanding of uh, human genetics, as a recent human genome was uh, was sequenced and completed, and uh, we're beginning to leverage this information and understand this this phenomenon of epigenetics, and taking into account this idea of epigenetics and the NIH's definition, as you um, explained earlier, of precision medicine, putting two and two together just makes sense. Looking at that environmental influence on gene expression and how we're able to turn on and off these molecular switches and enhance favorable gene expression based upon the signals that we're providing our body or exposing our bodies or exposome, our exposome is exposed to, and how that influences our overall gene expression. So over a course of, you know, almost 15, 20 years now, just putting it all together um, and synthesizing it has been um, incredible in regards to um, just connecting these molecular dots, so to speak, within precision medicine. Because right now, the landscape of precision medicine is highly focused on cancer and orphan drug um, discovery and applications. And I think if we were to look a little bit more upstream at leveraging this information, of genomics and environment and lifestyle, we could work to prevent a lot of these common conditions that we see here in primary care. Yeah, that's, that's very interesting. Actually, not too dissimilar from my own, starting off in the basic sciences and sort of creeping your way more into the clinic. Um, and then now you're taking your, your basic science background in precision medicine and actually applying it in the clinic um, in integrative medicine. So how do you do that? How do you combine precision medicine and integrative medicine? Or is it a natural fit? Yeah, it, it's quite a natural fit. Um, you know, working in primary care, one of the things that I realized is that um, essentially most primary care uh, physicians are really well-trained functional slash anti-aging medicine providers. Because when you look at the most common issues in regards to the, the common comorbidities that are treated in clinic, it's you're gonna it's gonna be your your type two diabetics, your hypertensive patients or high blood pressure, and your dyslipidemics or high cholesterol patients. And essentially, all the tools and interventions that we have at our disposal are incredible tools at leveraging and 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 modulating sugar, fat, and salt 
when you think about it. And when it comes down to the, the clinical applications of uh, treating these individuals, I think that we're, we're working a little bit um, upstream, third order, with these pharmaceutical agents. And if we brought it back down to a, a first order, um, and what, when I say these orders, I mean, I, I believe that there's a therapeutic order in regards to uh, approaching individualized care. And it should start with some of the least invasive um, modifiers before getting into some of the more aggressive agents and pharmaceutical agents. And leveraging uh, diet, nutrition, lifestyle is critical. And, um, you know, there's countless studies out there that's looked at how, you know, if you're sleep deprived, it influences uh, your tendency towards insulin resistance. If you're getting high fructose corn syrup, it's going to be obviously caramelizing your red blood cells. If we're getting too much salt. It's going to be driving up your blood pressure and we're going to give you a diuretic agent to flush out the salt. Um, so integrating some of the principles of, of um, holistic medicine, I think starts with the individual and seeing where they're at and what their uh, behaviors are are and um, trying to optimize that because we all have our unique trajectory and understanding this um, this the individual story is going to be critical at curating the most unique and individual individualized protocol for the patient. So if diet and exercise are one of those you know main issues, I think getting them on a personalized cardiometabolic plan is going to be one of the first actions that I, I take with most individuals. And um, going through a deep dive with the nutrition is going to be foundational. Looking at sleep and um, whether or not that is restorative, I like to leverage various apps, um, whether it's Sleep Cycle on your, your iPhone or if you're um, – Aura Ring. I'm personally using Aura Ring to track my sleeping habits and, and everything at nighttime, or just simply ruling out obstructive sleep apnea. So going through and approaching the individual and identifying these different patterns that might be causing dysregulation in their metabolomics or proteomics and trying to curate a unique protocol is, is kind of how I'm uh, attempting to curate this precision medicine approach but also leveraging genomics. And um, I, I'm just obsessed with uh, the integration of DNA testing within primary care. Um, we've seen that the cost of testing has come down um, significantly over the past uh, 20, five, uh, 20 years uh, to, to the past three to five years. Um, the cost of the hemo, uh, whole genome sequencing is under $500 now. And um, having this information to further identify specific gene polymorphisms or variants is critical at, I think, pinpointing exactly where in their blueprint there might be some issues and working either upstream or downstream to augment or, or modulate those pathways is going to be very important, especially when applying pharmacogenomics and looking at how somebody may or may not respond to a drug therapy, and nutrigenomics and applying the appropriate uh, food and infor information to the patient so that they could get on a individualized protocol.
Thank you for that. I'm, I'm glad that you brought up omics and, and, and genetics and how uh, exciting this field is and how we're learning so much. Um, but on the flip side, we were, we were promised a lot with the Human Genome Project that you know, it's gonna revolutionize medicine and just change absolutely everything. It hasn't quite delivered on that. Um, because there are other elements of health. Um, so do you feel that this is just a piece and you need to look at you know, everything that could affect the gene expression, the epigenetics, um, and that's why you're focusing on foundational health issues like lifestyle, um, sleep, nutrition, and um, physical activity? Absolutely. Um, you know, Dr. Jeffrey Bland, um, you know, is one of my main mentors. He's a, the founder of the Institute for Functional Medicine, and he's made some amazing comments. Um, and one of his comments that has resonated with me is that your genes are communicating with your environment and is marked by experience. And I think that epigenetic ph phenomenon is critical at, again, influencing favorable gene expression. And I do believe these uh, modifiable lifestyle factors are critical at optimizing in order to influence your gene expression, um, especially with more recent uh, research on RNA technologies and looking at it, being able to measure these epigenetic um, clocks and uh, be able to apply it clinically and see whether or not we're aging at a more accelerated rate um, and looking at this, this idea of your biological age. So I do feel as though these um, lifestyle factors are going to be the main regulators that need to be optimized first and foremost um, in this therapeutic order because you could sit here and take all sorts of drugs or medications, but if you're not addressing your modifiable life, lifestyle factors or MLFs, nothing will, nothing will improve. Because looking at it, again, from that multi-omic perspective, we have all uh, many different inputs influencing this milieu or internal biological terrain that uh, influences whether or not our bodies are going to be susceptible to infection, um, or if we're going to be able to metabolize things appropriately, looking at the gut microbiome and how that influences um, our, our body's receptivity to foods and nutrients as well. And it's our, our response to the glycemic um, our impact to various foods. So there's all these different factors that should be taken into account. I, I do agree with the statement that, you know, we thought that the, the human genome was going to be the holy grail and it was going to do all sorts of amazing things. But I think it has its limitations unless we start entertaining CRISPR and gene editing, but that's a whole nother discussion. Um, uh, but clinically, we could use this information to predict um, you know, medically what kind of therapies and drugs uh, individuals would respond better to and what kind of nutrition um, would be more uh, beneficial for individuals versus others, you know, especially with like looking at oxalates and um, MTHFR is a big one. And uh, we could also look at it in the context of uh, neuropsychiatric issues and neurotransmitter uh, synthesis and degradation pathways. So it's the blueprint is still there to leverage and could explain a lot uh, for the individual and why they might be feeling a certain way. But harnessing that potential is going to be critical. 
So, Anil, what are some examples of how you utilize that approach in your practice? Maybe things that other providers might find useful to know more about. Perfect. Yeah. So, again, I like to take a genome to phenome approach to healthcare. And most individuals, by the time I meet them, are on tons of medications and, um, you know, that I, I call them the basic medications um, that we're very common in clinical practice right now is going to be your anti um, diabetic meds, high blood pressure meds, and cholesterol meds. And looking at how we could use this information from, again, starting from your, your genomic blueprint would be looking at from a pharmacological or pharmacogenomic perspective, whether or not the medications are correct for you, um, whether or not you're statin intolerant and looking at polymorphism SLOCO 1B1, looking at uh, whether or not you have other underlying um, pathways that might be dampened. And by that, I mean, when you have these genetic polymorphisms, it influences enzyme production and function. One of the more common ones that we see is MTHFR or the methotetrahydrofolate reductase pathway. And there's varying levels of variation within that. And that influences everything from uh, monoamine neurotransmitter synthesis to hepatic detoxification to cardiovascular health. And bridging that gap from a uh, genome to a proteomic or metabolomic perspective would be using a, a surrogate marker of MTHFR, which would be like homocysteine. And if an individual has uh, MTHFR polymorphism and there are variations within that, and they have elevated homocysteine, um, clinically, you could use that biomarker as a means of uh, gauging that cardiovascular stress, and you could treat it nutritionally through methylating agents. One, you could uh, enhance the, the different, give your body the foods needed to help support methylation. Or two, you could actually go in there and support that pathway um, conservatively with additional methylating agents such as folic acid, B12, trimethylglycine. Another um, important polymorphism that I look at is, for example, vitamin D. Uh, I run vitamin Ds on almost everybody, and needless to say, a very high percentage of the patient population is low on their vitamin D status, including myself. And within my blueprint, I have a VDR polymorphism or a vitamin D receptor site polymorphism. So I, my levels are going to be genetically predetermined to be, to be low. So my need for vitamin D is a little bit higher, but I also keep that in mind that if it doesn't budge too much or respond clinically like some of my other patients, that it's okay, that I don't need to go in there and mega dose, but just be mindful that that vitamin D receptor site is, is influencing my receptivity to treatment. So, um, but another big part of leveraging this information in precision medicine is the, the role of the microbiome. Now, this is still in its infancy with the Human Microbiome Project, and we still don't have all the information needed to make informed, targeted therapeutic uh, applications. However, globally speaking, if we're able to identify that there is a dysbiosis or a imbalance in the gut microbiome due to either the resident population or the metabolites for which the microbiome is producing, um, we could use this information to 
remove specific foods and try to take a, a five R approach to uh, healing the gut. And there are various labs and testing uh, that is available out there to to gather this information so that we could again clinically have a more targeted approach to repairing and uh, restoring normal gut function. So synthesizing all this information using your DNA blueprint, and microbiome, biometrics, and various biomarkers is the aim of my organization, the Institute for Human Optimization, is connecting those molecular dots. This conversation reminds me of, of ones we've had in the past, Anil, including conversations we've we've had about the Institute. So I know that it's been in the works for at least two years or more, uh, but it's finally open. And, and could you tell us what it is and what do you hope to accomplish with, um, with the Institute? Oh, thank you. Yeah, actually, the Institute's been a, a dream of mine, um, during since undergrad, when when you look at healthcare right now and how it is, it's a very interesting model that we have. It's it's a sick care system where you go in there, you you might get on average six to twelve minutes with your primary care provider, and you're left with maybe one or two additional drugs, um, and you're, the patient is left wondering, what do I do from here? So the Institute for Human Optimization is this idea of a not being a sick care clinic, but a health optimization center where you could go there and take a deep dive into your own uh, information, what I like to call N of one research, where we're looking at you as an individual and we're dissecting um, everything from your your genetic uh, genomic uh, blueprint to your microbiome and those biomarkers and those biometrics. And what we're calling a scientific wellness approach, to, uh, leveraging data. And um, it's been in the works and we're actually, you know, until COVID hit, we're, we're looking at a, a space um, in Columbia, Maryland, um, but that's forced us to pivot and just leverage our online platform. And now we have the capabilities of delivering this for completely virtually and um, getting you the kits needed for DNA testing, microbiome analysis, and so forth, and then being able to do consulta consultative services virtually to explore those options. Um, but there are some metrics that I would like to gather in person. Uh, there's another technology that I use clinically called uh, PhysioAge. PhysioAge is a... Uh, this software program that leverages various uh, technologies, including looking at arterial plethysmography, which is arterial stiffness, and it helps generate this cardiovascular age. And there's some other uh, inputs. We look at your pulmonary age um, using traditional pulmonary function tests. And um, there's a few other markers that we look at to assess your neurocognitive status, your immunological status, and also... Um, your epigenetic age. And for me, if patients come to me in person, this is what we're attempting to do is paint this picture of your biological baseline and your biological age. And we're attempting to move that needle backwards and demonstrate epigenetically and through telomere testing that we have 
favorable, we're enhancing favorable gene expression and able to reverse that biological clock through these interventions, these personalized interventions. So that's the main aim of it. Um, and uh, it's, it's been a, a work in progress and uh, it's, it's coming together. So I think that's a great example of how, you know, we have to adapt and overcome in this post COVID-19 world. Um, and one of the silver linings that I hope comes out of this pandemic is telehealth and the realization that uh, it's not only possible to help patients remotely, but it's actually more convenient for them. Uh, you know, they don't have to leave work. Uh, and if you can do as much as you can remotely, then you can still have them come in when need be, but you're really optimizing that time with them. Um, I'm wondering if you have any other thoughts about COVID-19 uh, and how that has changed practice or maybe clinical pearls that you want to share with your peers. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Um, you know, with COVID-19, uh, I've been doing both a clinic, uh, working at an urgent care clinic um, uh, next door to Hopkins here at Bayview. And uh, I've also been doing telemedicine consults virtually um, from patients all over the country. You know, with the pandemic, it's lifted up a lot of the state regulations have been um, unrestricted. And uh, I've been able to uh, communicate with patients all over the country. And it's it's very interesting to see how this has influenced everything, everything. Um, and it's, 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 it's just incredibly fascinating. So with COVID, I mean, it, it definitely caught us at a very interesting time and it caught us flat-footed in many respects. We weren't prepared for a lot of the the falling out of everything from the personal protective equipment um, to the resources and testing and everything else. So it just, you know, within our lifetime, we were able to experience our first major pandemic. And um, it's, it's incredibly interesting to see how it's being promoted, one, globally, uh, and how it's infecting very specific targeted populations. Um, you hear about the young physicians that are, are becoming ill with, with COVID, and, and um, there's a few young providers that have um, passed away from this, and you're, you're hearing about the elderly and so forth um, that are more susceptible to this issue. And it, it makes you wonder who and what and why um, is going to have this more fatal clinical response to the issue after contracting it. And um, I'm seeing COVID patients weekly, and um, it's, it's very scary to see how people are tipping. Um, and by tipping, I mean they're desaturating and they're becoming very critically ill very rapidly. And one of the... Uh, comorbidities that I've been seeing um, with my patients personally, and has also been backed by the literature, are the individuals that have this immunosuppressed state or a dampened immune response. And that's with uh, obesity and type 2 diabetes and underlying cardiopulmonary disease such as COPD. And for the bulk of the patients that end up going to the hospital and ICU and everything else that I've, I've triaged, um, and that we're triaging at my center, um, those are 
the comorbidities that I'm seeing that's influencing their um, hypoxia or low oxygen status. And tying it into where we're at today with, um, or using this precision-like medicine model and this idea of biological aging, one of the hallmarks of biological aging is immunosenescence, where we're producing or have reached this, this potential with our immune system where it's no longer producing quality immune cells. Um, every 10 seconds, uh, our hematopoietic potential is we're putting out 1 million white blood cells, 10 million red blood cells, and I think it's 23 million platelets. And uh, I'm sorry, 30 million platelets. So Leveraging this information in terms of hematopoiesis and our ability to synthesize um, new cells into circulation gives us an opportunity for immunological regeneration and giving your body the cofactors needed to help put out a more robust, um, stronger uh, immunological programming through different cofactors. We hear about zinc and vitamin D. Um, those are all very important components or nutrients needed to generate the appropriate immunological responses. And I don't want to get into a crash course on immunology, but we have varying levels of our immune system that deal with these stresses. One of them being our innate immune system, which is going to handle anything that we come into um, contact with on a, on a regular basis versus our adaptive or humoral immune response. And being able to leverage and give your body the appropriate um, cofactors needed is going to be very important in this equation to help battle and combat against um, uh, any viral infection. Um, additionally, this idea of the, the cytokinetic storm. Well, you know, the cytokinetic storm that you, you hear about is mediated by this NLRP3 inflammasome, but it's a bigger discussion about this idea of sterile inflammation, this, this idea of chronic sterile inflammation for which a lot of individuals are living with on a regular basis. One of the biomarkers that we like to look at is um, high-sensitive C-reactive protein and ESR, erythrocyte sedimentation rate. These are our very nonspecific inflammatory markers that tell us that our body is in this chronically inflamed state. And this idea of sterile inflammation being we're not necessarily, this inflammatory response wasn't triggered by some sort of infectious state, but more so it's inflammation that is generated at a, a baseline um, secondary to obesity, and um, dietary uh, influences that could cause maybe this postprandial metabolic endotoxemia. What does that mean? After you eat certain foods, your body seeds uh, certain bacteria into the bloodstream, and it causes this chronic inflammatory response. Um, so all these factors mediate this process of sterile inflammation. And unfortunately, um, if you're carrying a little bit more um, weight or have a higher BMI, it predisposes you towards this cytokinetic storm. And that's kind of what I'm seeing it with the patients that I have to send to, uh, the, uh, to the ICU is that they might have these other comorbidities.
So it's, it's really interesting um, time right now that COVID has made us take a step back and made us realize, oh no, how do I strengthen my immune system? How do I decrease these comorbidities to pre- prevent me from, if I do contract this illness, to make sure that I don't end up on a vent? And I've had several patients end up on a vent, and I've had coworkers unfortunately end up on a vent. And um, it's just very interesting time right now. And so with, with, um, with everything, uh, philosophically speaking, I think this is a unique time for us to really self-reflect on our, our patterns of behavior and to empower ourselves with just restoring um, normal, normal routines or developing better dietary habits and sleep habits and uh, exercise habits, even though we're home, you know, we could still do these little uh, fitness routines at home um, to, to help get our heart rate up. Because again, exercise is a simple mathematical equation of 220 minus your, your age times 0.6 or 0.8 or 60 to 80% of that target heart rate over a specific duration of time. And, you know, um, just going up and down stairs or doing burpees or just doing, you know, calisthenics could get your heart rate where it needs to be just to stimulate that, uh, that uh, favorable cardiovascular response. So it's, it's, yeah, I'm sorry. That, that, that was a little, <laughs> little out there. I, I tied into all sorts of different things there, but um, yeah. No, I, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. And I think that's exactly the type of, I don't know, systems thinking that COVID-19 is actually bringing to the forefront. I think people like you and, and, and us in GW Integrative Medicine have this systems thinking thought that this chronic inflammation leading to chronic disease is, is not just problematic to the individual, but it's problematic in a public health scale um, because people are, are setting themselves up for further illness and, uh, if we can do anything to improve upon that, I, I hope that COVID-19 is really highlighting that. I agree. It's definitely, um, you know, left us looking at, you know, all these different cofactors that could be potentially contributing to our exposure and development of, uh, you know, these different infections. Um, you know, just from hand hygiene and how we're uh, hand hygiene and respiratory droplets and everything else is transforming the way we interact with individuals and um, just even from the foods we're eating to the thoughts that we're having and just, just everything has been challenged by this pandemic. And um, I'm hoping to take away from this more of an enlightened stance globally uh, on the importance of of these modifiable lifestyle factors to strengthen and enhance our resilience to not just COVID, but other diseases. Because one of the first things that you saw in response to this issue was people were flocking to the health food stores and, and purchasing tons of supplements. And, you know, again, I don't agree with going in there and self-medicating um, without a specific purpose or supervision of a trained healthcare provider. 
But, you know, we've seen various levels of evidence on vitamin C and its role in modulating immunological activity, vitamin D and zinc and all these different cofactors. That's the medicine um, that we've been reaching for in the absence of a specific antiviral agent, in the absence of a vaccine. We're, We're forced to now leverage and empower our immune system to help build that resilience. And I think it, it was a, a switch that was turned on for us globally to, to really pay respect to our bodies and have a, a deeper appreciation of our, our cells and, and this idea of immunological activity and resilience. So it's been very interesting to see that. And Neil, you've given us so much to think about, and um, including the fact that this topic may be good for next year's Sung Symposium. I would agree with that. Absolutely. You know, and it's interesting because one of the deep dives that I've been taking more recently has been exploring the field of aging. Um, One of my um, secondary boards is the American Academy for Anti-Aging Medicine and Regenerative Medicine. And there's a paper that I've been just obsessing over for the past uh, few few weeks now. I've just been nerding out completely on this this (laughs) publication from Cell in 2013 that looked at the hallmarks of aging. And philosophically, you know, in medicine, you're either going to age, which is a loss of function, or unfortunately, get cancer, which is a gain of function. It's this constant dualistic approach to how we see the aging body or, and, and health and disease. And you know, I, with the Sung Symposium this year, I, I've heard you know, the topic of health, this idea of health brought up repeatedly and, you know, the definition of health, not merely being the absence of disease, but in looking at all these other factors that define what is health. And I think, yeah, def- it's definitely not the absence of disease. And it also explores that idea of the homeodynamic adaptive capacity to deal with various allostatic loads. And I just said a lot right there, but, you know, looking at this, we're not static. We're in this dynamic fluctuating existence. Um, throughout the day, throughout our life. And our goal is to maintain some level of homeostasis and to mitigate and minimize any perturbations that would lead to imbalance. And this adaptive capacity to allostatic load or stress is what's going to influence and tee off a lot of different potential imbalances within our body. And how do we deal with that? But um, going back to that idea of these hallmarks of aging, it, it ties right into everything that we're talking about in regards to precision medicine. You know, the, there's nine fundamental hallmarks of aging and um, not to get too caught up, but, you know, one of them is looking at this idea of genetic instability and how that's influenced by various mutations or even epigenetic stress. Well, actually, there's a, one of the hallmarks is epigenetic alteration. Um, telomere attrition, dysregulate nutrient sensing, and that ties into the this idea of mTOR and fasting and AMP kinase. Um, there's this idea of cellular senescence, uh, altered extracellular communication, stem cell exhaustion, mitochondrial dysfunction. These are all 
part of the hallmarks of this biological aging process and what we as integrative and functional uh, clinicians are addressing on a regular basis. And um, I I really think that um, taking a deep dive into this idea of aging and how we could reverse that clock, so to speak, so that we could be aging more gracefully. Uh, One of my mentors, again, too, was Andrew Weil growing up. I had the privilege of doing um, an elective rotation with their integrative medicine uh, department as a medical student. And he wrote a book, um, several books on this idea of aging and aging gracefully. And it's it's always resonated with me as um, a young young physician. You know, this that should be our focus is promoting longevity and wellness, and um, is actually uh, the key idea or the, the main idea of the book that I'm about to release. I don't know if I got it to mention it to you guys, but um, today I'm getting from my publishers a rough draft of uh, the book with the working title, "The Longevity Equation." And um, it's, it's something that I'm excited to share with everyone, uh, this idea of, of aging and aging gracefully and how we could do things to, quote unquote, biohack ourselves to promote longevity. Well, congratulations on that. That's exciting. Uh, you'll have to let us know when it's officially out so we can share it with our listeners. And bring you back on the program to talk about it. There you go. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah, I would love to. Thank you. Thank you. So that is all the time we have for today, but I think we gave you some food for thought and you can look forward to next year's Sung Symposium. Uh, if you missed this year's Sung Symposium on wellness and longevity, it is available on our website and we will include a link to it in the show notes. Thanks so much for joining us, Nell. Thank you, guys. This is the GW Integrative Medicine Podcast from the GW Office of Integrative Medicine and Health. I'm Dr. Lee Frank. And I'm Janet Rodriguez. Thanks, Thanks for, for listening. listening.